Well, we're brought into Matthew chapter 5 again to encounter the teachings of this Christ that we just have sung and we want to see him through the teaching of the Word of God. So we take that challenge and this is the conclusion message of Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 5 ends with such a provocative challenge that I'm going to start there, just the last verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. It says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection, being perfect. That immediately, uh, I don't know, can cause anxiety in a person's heart because they know how imperfect they are. It's an impossible standard. Jesus is, in essence, summarizing all that he's been teaching and practically applying in this Sermon on the Mount up till now and is summarizing all these applications with the phrase, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What does that mean? Anytime someone expects perfection, there's an inherent problem because we're kind of asking, how can you expect that? Any good parent looks at their child in the context of athletics or academics and says, well, you know, look, do the best you can because nobody is perfect. So what is Jesus doing here raising this kind of expectation? Is this just something that's hypothetical? Is this something that's unrealistic? Is this hyperbole that Jesus is using here to shock people and get their attention some scholars, many scholars, will just relegate this to a hypothetical standard or something that is really to be found under Old Covenant, Old Testament law that isn't carried forward in the Christian experience. Must be some dated and practical teaching. It can't be targeting moral behavior and asking someone to be perfect. Well, actually, instead of any of these things, Jesus is targeting the Christian, the follower of Jesus Christ, and he's wiping away any kind of self-reliance by shooting the standard all the way up to God's holiness. He doesn't pull any punches there in terms of Christ's righteousness and holy character God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's who we're talking about. We're starting with that standard. Can't achieve it by works, though. You can't achieve it by some kind of religious path or track. We follow Christ who is perfect by faith, not by works, not by externals, but by heart transformation that gives us the desire to be holy as God is holy. I never loved holiness before I became a Christian. Then when I became a Christian, I, it was daunting to think about holiness, to think about God's perfections, to think about God's glory and, and going there and moving towards glory, moving towards holiness. But something had changed in my heart and I longed for what I knew I was always going to fall short of except for the power of Christ in my life, Right? Christ's power is what we rely on as we pursue the glories of heaven. And this standard of righteousness is meant to draw us to holiness. 
Others will swing the pendulum all the way away from some kind of moral perfectionism, which we, I'm not talking about perfectionism. I'm not talking about that kind of legalism, that kind of wrong religion, that kind of idea that I'm going to say 100% no anger anymore, 100% no lust anymore, 100% perfect marriage now, 100% promise keeper now, 100% non-retaliation attitude, 100% love for enemies all in my own self-will or my own willpower, I'm going to get a hundred on that exam. That's not at all what Christ is doing. Christ is working opposite of that. But some will say, well, he can't be talking about, we know he's not talking about legalism. He's not, he's combating the Pharisees, but he can't be talking about moral obedience because we're all sinners. Well, I would argue if you look at the text here in Matthew 5, All of these application categories are talking about things that we're supposed to obey and actually do. And these are moral things. Lust, anger, non-retaliation, healthy marriage. All these things are choices and decisions that have to be made. So what is he talking about? Some people will say, well, it only could be talking about Christ's righteousness. He bought us at the cross and so cross and that's all true. And so we're made righteous, but this can't be talking about moral obedience. All the hyper grace movements that have, they're kind of um, waning now, but there was this whole movement for about 10 years that we're not going to talk about any do's and don'ts in the Christian life because that's not Christian. Christian obedience, uh, there's no such thing. We just live by grace and we just kind of figure it out as we go along. That really was a theological trend that is kind of running out of gas now. Uh, it's what, what is Jesus talking about? What he's doing here is he's actually engaging our hearts to say, we can't do it. We come to you with a posture of helplessness. We come to you relinquishing our own willpower and say, Lord, it is by Christ, by grace, through faith alone that we're going to obey. It's through Christ that we obey. And Christ is the one who is making us righteous as we grow. That's Christian sanctification. We're not there yet, but greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He who began a good work in you is what? Faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's working on us. So the standard is God's holiness and we're pursuing it by grace through faith. You could say, in essence, that to be perfect is just synonymous with living for Christ by faith, by faith. What Jesus has been doing all along in this um, sermon so far is deconstructing self-reliance. Remember in verse 3 of chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who will recognize that when they look inside, they see, they see a poor spirit. They see something that is soaked with sin. And so we have to say, I am taking a posture of helplessness. But when you take that posture of helplessness, you know that you have the kingdom. You can't go in the flesh. You can't say, I haven't murdered anyone, so I'm good so far. You can't say, I've never crossed the line fully and committed full adultery, so I'm good. My marriage fell apart, uh, but we weren't compatible, and so that's okay. We're all good. Matthew 5, 31 would have something to say about that. My word is my bond, unless I need to fudge a little. Nobody knows the difference anyway. Matthew 5.33 would hold that in check. The person deserved what they had coming to them because they started it. Matthew 5.38 and 39 would hold that in check. I don't have to love that person. In fact, I'm pretty bitter because that person, watch this, attacked me. 
So I'm going to hold on to that, categorically say that's an attacker. And so I don't have to love that person or pray for that person. I'm good. That's exactly what Jesus is confronting. You can't have those kinds of mindsets and behaviors and claim Christ. He's deconstructing that kind of self-reliance. This is the Christian life. Instead of these hammer blow commands binding us, you know what they should do? They should, they should crank us into the ground so we can take off and fly spiritually. He gives us no other breathing room, no compromise with these words. You have to be perfect. In other words, you follow these commands by faith. And it creates something that's amazing. Watch this. When you live this way, you're actually extending Christ's witness on earth. You're actually living as Christ when you follow this path, the path of the Sermon on the Mount, and people will see it. It's what I've titled these kind of two-part message, this two-part message together as a series as doing the impossible. From the world's perspective, this is impossible to live this way. It's shocking. People, they, so, so you're not going to be mad at that person? So, so, okay, you're killing lust in your own heart. You're denying yourself on that level. You're not going to hang on to that. You're not going to fudge here on this, on this promise or this uh, commitment. No, just going to follow Jesus. It's what he expects of me because he loves me. And I'm going to do it by faith because I love him. And by the way, in the power that he gives me, not that I'm trying to muster up in my own flesh and willpower. Fair? I mean, that's living the impossible life in front of the world. And that's what wins people to Jesus. This is evangelism, you could say. Jesus has been exposing a false tactic, a tactic that is using the law as cover for sinning. This is uh, twisting the law or contorting it to make allowances for people to get away with living in the flesh under the guise of religion. This is what happens all the time in mainstream evangelicalism, mainstream churchianity. They go to church, you pay your dues, you pay your time, you do your deal and kind of live a quasi-Christian life in the name of Christ and you wonder why you feel dead inside all week long instead of alive. Jesus is just cutting it straight here. It's a painful thing to look into the law of God and see it, see your reflection in the mirror of what Christ requires, but it's pain that draws us to do in front of the world that which the world believes is impossible. So if you're taking notes, uh, last week we introduced, this is a two-section sermon, verses 38 to 42. It's, it's doing two impossibilities made possible by God's intervening grace Verses 38 to 42, this is where God gives grace not to retaliate to abuse. So when you're abused, you don't retaliate in kind. Four scenarios were given. Verse 39, when your dignity is insulted. Verse 40, when you're sued unrighteously. Verse 41, common, when you're commandeered into service. This is government oppression. That's what it's talking about. Verse 42, when you're swindled out of money, when you're cheated. These are areas where you respond like Jesus. They're very practical. They're very personal, very real. Well, here's the second impossibility made possible. And this one is really, really relevant and will live with you if you allow it to. A teaching in your heart that will help you and guide you and protect you and free you. Verses 43 to 48, God gives grace when attacked to love and pray for the attacker. To love and pray for 
the attacker. Look at verse 43. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's stop there. Now, again, Jesus with his heartfelt sigh is saying, well, you've heard it said, you've heard it this way. This is how you're being taught. Again, the power of the spoken word, not preaching the word. I'm talking about any powerful spoken wrong teaching should not be underestimated. Think about the spoken word on news media that changes the culture, that sets the condition, that can cast people um, and the herd in one direction or another, that can change people's emotions, how they feel about shopping, how they feel about going, how they feel about doing. The power of spoken influence is not to be underestimated. And these rabbis, these religious teachers had great influence and great power over the herd those who were Israelites, those who were alleged followers of God. And this influence was high and it was also logical. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's logical. You're a good Jew. You're God's holy nation. Separation is, is the name of the game. So you, you love people who are like you and you hate people who are not like you. Actually, you hate the people who are coming against you. This is a very practical and logical Temptation to follow, right? Or teaching to follow to say, you know what? When somebody's attacking me, I'm going to protect myself at all costs. And part of my protection is to actually hate that person, is to isolate that person away from me, to shut my emotions off from that person, to in fact despise that person. That will protect me, that will help me. So thank you for this teaching. It's very logical, it's very natural, it's the teaching of hate. Well, there's a problem with that. There's something that should immediately stand out when you see this verse, you shall love your neighbor. Well, we understand that. There's no argument with loving our neighbor. There's no argument with the theme of love in the Bible. It's the second phrase that's attached to it that we should think about. It's the command to hate your enemy. Does the Bible command us anywhere to hate our enemies? Nowhere, nowhere. The Bible does not say thou shalt hate your enemy. Doesn't do it, doesn't do it. There's a temptation, I would say, even in the church today with the rising um, tensions that are around our country to actually start to have angst and have that angst lead to hatred to people that are defying Christ or defying what we're standing for. We have to kill that. We're, not, we're never commanded to hate. Now, the Bible does make some prescription, not prescriptions, but some statements that could sound like we're commanded to hate, but it never means that we're supposed to hate people. Romans 9, this is God speaking. Romans 9, 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What does that mean? Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 139, 21 and 22, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. What do we do with that? That's David's testimony in Psalm 139. Revelation 2, 6, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What's God doing here? What's God's word doing here? Well, 
This is what the theologians would, would call as covenant action. This is God speaking an adjudication on a nation or a people group that has rejected him. Jacob, the line of Jacob I loved, the people um, that are rejecting me, where God has extended grace to them, and they're rejecting God's love and God's grace. He's pronouncing an adjudication, a kingly adjudication to say, I hate you. It's a righteous hatred at that point. That's what God can do. Now, what's David doing in Psalm 139? In Psalm 139, remember, David is king. And as king of Israel, he had the special um, Holy Spirit anointed opportunity and privilege to speak for God like a prophet. And so when he pronounced an imprecatory prayer against a nation, that was covenantal action where he's doing it in the name of God. And so when he expresses hatred, it's in the name of God's covenantal action against God's enemies against Israel. So that's what David was doing. That's the role he was performing. But that's not God's heart in total. God's love in all of Revelation, there's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. God is the God of the Bible and God has always had a general love for the world. The world is made in the image of God. Every person, every living person, no matter murderer, no matter, you know, name your sin, pick your abhorrent category. These are people and individuals that God has given grace to where they're born into this world and they're sinning and he doesn't immediately drop them into the hell that they deserved. That's general love. That's God's grace calling the vilest of sinners to repent and to believe and to turn. God has always been this way. John three sixteen. for God so loved the, what, world, the cosmion, all, everyone. He loves everyone from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. He made them all. He made them just like they are. In, in Psalm 139, even where David is giving that priest, that kingly adjudication, there's still love in that because he's talking about how every child is intricately woven and knit together in a mother's womb. He loves that baby. He loves the world. He made a provision for all of the world to be saved. John, 1 John 2, 2, he's the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins and not ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, 10 for to this end we toil and strive because we have, we have our hope set on the living God who's the savior of all people, especially those who believe. All people groups are called to be saved. I'm not a universalist. Not everybody is going to be atoned for and saved in the end. That's, that's just not true. The Bible teaches that those who reject God's love, God's general call, are condemned to hell forever. But that doesn't mean God hasn't loved them and extended grace to them. One, um, well, the pastor uh, I respect um, who said this, John MacArthur, he said, God's love, listen to this. I remember hearing this as a seminary student sitting in church under his preaching on this topic. It's God's love is unlimited in extent, in its wideness, but limited in degree. In other words, God's love is as wide as the world and all of humanity, but it has limitations in terms of how it is particularly applied. Everyone who believes has God's especial love where you become a son or a daughter when he saves you. That's, a, that's an especial love, but that doesn't erase his general love. 
He has general love and he has particular love when you believe and are saved and you become his child. Does that make sense? Let me just depict it in this way. It's like a judge who's ruling over someone who is a murderer who's worthy of being executed and he ultimately hears the evidence and hears all the different um, dynamics in the court and he adjudicates that that person has to be killed for their sin that they've committed But as that judge pronounces that person guilty, he or she in his or her heart is sitting there grieving and crying for that person's soul inside. So God is that complicated and far more in that he can have compassion, love, weeping tears for the world, the weeping tears of Jeremiah, the compassion of Christ that would have gathered all of Israel like a mother hen. Chicks, I wish that all of Israel would have been saved, but... Many have rejected me. The tears of Christ, the tears of, of Jeremiah, which represent the tears of God, are real and powerful. And at the same time, God is only going to save those who turn to him in faith. God's grace is wide enough to save everyone, but it only applies to those who believe. Otherwise, we're universalist and the Bible is not speaking to universalism. Well, back to Matthew five forty three. it's really revealing a false rendering of Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. False teachers will either add things that aren't there to make their point, to create this religion of that, that covers people's license, or... Redefine terms. And in this case, the term neighbor is being redefined as somebody who's your kin or your immediate relative, part of your race. You love those people, but you hate everybody else. This is the, the, the false binary bifurcation of false religion. False religion is always utterly binary. You're either in, you're either with us, you're either part of us, or I hate you. You're out. You're on the outside until you're on the inside. There was an old uh, dictum by a monastic community that lived over by the Red Sea that was isolating itself during the times of Christ. And they said, love the brothers, hate the outsider. Does that sound familiar? Even in Islamic religion, are you in or are you my enemy, right? What does Christ say? Christ says, come in, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. And what? I will give you rest. Come, come. God draws people to himself out of all kinds of sinful states and relieves this sin curse in a person's life so that they can be cleansed and brought into this special love and mercy. And for those who are outside, there's weeping mercy and a general call for people to come. We never take a posture of hate toward people. There's 7.6 billion people in our world And most of them represent the wide road leading to destruction. And most of them hate God. Romans chapter 8 says they are at enmity with God. They're enemies of God. God loves them anyway. God loves them anyway. They might have a curse pronounced on them ultimately for rejecting God. But God is merciful. He's patient. It's complicated, but... It's true, Christians are regularly accused of hate speech. They're accused of hating people. 
in the name of love, but it's a tragic miscasting of Jesus' mission and heart. We call out the sins of Scripture from Scripture. We, we say Jesus is the only way. We talk about hell that is eternal, that must be escaped. But this is not hatred. This is grace. The accusation that Christians hate and that that is promoting division is an absolute farce. The only real unity that can be achieved in this world with humankind is under God. Doesn't that make sense? Under Christ. Only true unity comes from heart change where people are knit together in Christ. So when we promote Christ, we actually are promoting unity. We actually are promoting racial unity. We're actually promoting reconciliation on the deepest level. We're actually doing things that aren't superficial, but are the deepest level for unifying people together in Christ. I'm not talking about superficial ecumenical movements where we all sing kumbaya together in some concert or some stadium. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about transformation. The gospel is the, is the agency for unity and unifying. And what people will do is they'll create all kinds of programmatized um, do's or don'ts. You either do this and we're all unified. If you don't do this, if you don't bow in this way, if you don't act in this way, if you don't speak in this way, if you don't apologize for something you didn't do in this way, then you're out. Guess what? That's disunifying. It's not unifying. It's the opposite. Do you see that? Unity comes in grace and the gospel, not in some kind of superficial morality. But that's what the world can offer. That's all religion can do. You're either in or you're out. Instead of you're either believing or you're not believing yet. I mean, parenting is boiled down a lot of times like this. If you behave then you're right with me, kid. Just behave, right? These are my best moments as a parent just on display right now. If you behave, if you do right, everything's happy in the home. You do wrong, it's not happy, right? If that's, if that's your Christian spirituality, if that's your religion, that's kind of a, a dead-end street and that actually will harden the heart of a kid. But if you say behave, you should say behave, obey, But you also say, not only behave, but you say believe. Behave and believe. You should say believe probably more than you say behave. Behave, but believe. Believe on Jesus. Behave because you believe. (laughs) Just put it together that way. Transform hearts. This is the message of Christ. This is what it means to be perfect. It's exceeding a standard of superficial perfectionism that the Pharisees put on display and said, look, this is normal, you know, this is normal religion following. And as long as you adhere to this, then you're fine and you're in. And Jesus is saying, no, behavior isn't enough. You have to believe. And out of believing, then you obey. This is going to implode the wrong superficial solutions of social reform. There's so much social activism that has now come in the name of social justice, which I used to read about. I was born in the 70s. I used to hear about the 50s and 60s about churches that made Christ all about just do-gooding and going out and doing good things. And that kind of made you right with God. And that was inspirational. Well, that's all happening again. People are very inspired to take care of the victim and and the person who's homeless or the person who is in need. And we all believe in that. We all believe in that. But when that becomes 
the, the actual essence of Christianity, you can miss what it means to be transformed from the heart by repenting of sins and believing in Christ. And then out of a transformed heart, you want to serve people and help people. People, and, people who invert that um, basically mute the gospel, the truth of transformation, and they put the cart before the horse, and then there's, there's no horse at all, suddenly. The horse is trotted away. It's just an empty cart called religion. That's what Jesus is confronting. That's what he confronted with the lawyer. I love this. I looked at this parable this week, and I had never gotten it until this week, and it's funny. You know, you can be in the Lord for a while and study the Bible a lot and miss the point until you don't miss the point and you actually see it. And that's kind of what happened here. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37, I'd ask you to turn there. There was a certain lawyer and he was trying to um, say that he was right with God and challenged Jesus. He says, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do, man? What, what checkbox do I need to, to cover to make sure I'm right with God? I'm a sharp thinking lawyer. Let's get this done. Let's broker this deal. Let's finish it off. And Jesus, he said to him, what is written in the law? Let's hold the law up. Here it is. What's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you read this? That's a deep question. How do you read it? Are you reading it in light of yourself? Are you reading it in light of being a do-gooder? How are you reading the law? And he, the lawyer, answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. So that's a pretty good summation of the law, right? Well, Jesus takes it farther, and he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Do what? He just said, love the Lord your God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do you know what that is? Heart transformation. How do you do the law? Be transformed, and then you'll be doing the law. That's the whole point. Does the lawyer get this? But he, the lawyer, verse 29, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he starts to think about a neighbor. Okay, wait, we're not talking about heart transformation. Where's the neighbor? Show me the victim. Show me the person that I need to do something for and I'll do it. And I guarantee you I've already done it. That's, that's his attitude. Where's the neighbor? Show me what to do. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out to denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now watch how Jesus in verse 36 flips the script. What you have is two religious leaders that pass by a person who's half dead. It's a person who is half, he's beaten to a pulp, 
fell among thieves. That means a gang beat this person half to death. This person's going to die if he is left alone. Two priests, a Levite, and then the priest walk by on either side of the road. And they're like, yeah, we don't have anything to do with this person. That person's bloody. We can't touch him anyway. Unclean. Then you have the Samaritan who is racially mixed between Jew and Gentile. And Samaritans were despised by most people as unclean. Jesus went to the woman at the well in Samaria. Remember that? That was breaking all kinds of racial barriers. So you have a racial dynamic here of a Samaritan who sees that person and ministers that person's need times a thousand. Why? Because that person had true heart transformation. That person had compassion. It's the Greek word splognos. Had the, I'm moved. I need to help that person. It wasn't programmed help. It wasn't, he didn't sign up to help. It wasn't checkbox help. It's I'm walking by, that person needs help and I'm moved in my spirit to help. That's justice. That's to, to have mercy, to show justice according to Micah, right? That's normal Christian life, okay? So now in verse 36, Jesus flips the script on the lawyer. The lawyer's looking for the neighbor to reach out to. He's not concerned about his own heart. He's looking for the neighbor. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Do you see that? Okay, you have, you have sort of, you have four people in the parable. You have the person half beaten to a pulp. You have the Levite, the priest, and the Samaritan. And the lawyer's looking to this person. Okay, okay, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Jesus says, no, don't worry about that person. Look at these three people and compare your own heart to these three people. Which one are you? That's, that's the category of, of neighbors that you need to think about being like. Not finding something to do. Think about who you are or are not. Are you a Levite? Are you a religious person? Or are you going to be the Samaritan? This is not about doing, it's about being. But I really like the way Jesus flipped the script. He called out the lawyer's game. He said, you can't check a box. You can't just try to make yourself right with God. Who's the neighbor? The neighbor needs to be you, lawyer. <laughs> the neighbor needs to be you. This is who you are supposed to be. Don't try to do something to make yourself feel better. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Your first concern is having your heart right with God, and that's why you love your neighbor. There's a lot of social justice movements out there that are gathering people in the name of do-gooding and conferences that are happening or Zooming now or whatever, and people are coming and gathering around these things. Why? Because anybody can agree with the fact that we need to love someone who's victimized. We all agree with that. We all in this room agree with that. We're not going to leave somebody on the side of the road. We need to help them. That's Christianity. But people who aren't even believers believe that. That's what you have to understand. Everybody gets that. Everybody's worried about people who are in need. But that in and of itself does not prove whether or not you've followed Christ yet. And that's, that's the thing we have to debug and we have to think about. Be a true follower of Christ. How do you find out if you're a follower of Christ? You look into the law of God and see what's reflecting back to you. A lover of Jesus or a person who is religious, who thinks that they can law keep them, themselves right with God or a person who doesn't care what they see. The law can also show your sin. You go, well, I don't care. That's a lot of people. Law can show your sin. You say, well, I'm going I'm to outrun this with my good works. And the law can show you your sin. You go, man, amazing grace. How sweet the sound who saved a wretch like me, right? 
That's Christianity. That's the truth. And this has always been the, the message of the Bible, Exodus 12, 48 and 49. The, out, the insiders who were Jews were always to be compassionate even to the sojourner who would pass by on Passover. The person who was walking by, they were invite them, inviting them in. You're not to hate enemies, you're to love people. Love people to the Lord, Exodus 23, 4 and 5. This is funny. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. We look for opportunities to help people. Now look down at verse 44 again. I want to point this out, but I say to you, love your enemies. So verse 43 is saying, hey, hate your enemy. When that happens, hate your enemy. Jesus flips it and ramps it up and says, no, you're actually supposed to love your plural enemies. That means this is baseline for life. There's going to be a lot of people who don't like you. There's a lot of people who haven't liked me over my time, either here or other places. And, you know, if there's something wrong that needs to be corrected in me, I need to be willing to do that. We all do. But we're all going to have enemies just for naming Christ, just for loving the Lord. People will, will, will be rubbed crossways by our love for the Lord. And our goal is always to love the attacker it's impossible to do that. Well, pray for the attacker. Love the attacker. Don't be bullied by the attacker. But it is not only thinking counterintuitively, it is now acting counterintuitively. What do you do? Jesus is profound. He gives you two options. He doesn't say, well, you know, here's 10 things that you need to do when you're attacked. It's just two things. Love and pray. Am I supposed to gossip? No. Am I supposed to get mad? No. Am I supposed to harbor anger and bitterness? No. Am I supposed to dream and scheme how to get the person back? No. Am I supposed to take vengeance into my hand? No. Uh, how, how depressing, how busy is a life that's wound up trying to get your attacker back? Jesus gives you the get out of jail free pass. You don't have to do that. Just love that person and pray for him. And we talked about protecting our family from abuse. I mean, I understand all of that. Can listen to last week's message about that, but but the heart of what we're doing, where there's grace in our hearts, it, it comes from praying for that person and loving that person. This is the hammer blows that C.S. Lewis talked about in Mere Christianity, and he was accused of not caring for the Sermon on the Mount. He says, "Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? It's a deadly spiritual condition to read a passage like this with tranquil pleasure. These are hammer blows, hammer blow." Get us on the ground so that we can go, okay, I'm unfettered, now I can fly. I can pray for that person. I've been crushed. I'm letting go of some pride. I'm repenting of my pride for being hurt and being attacked. Now it's time to take off and fly in the counterintuitive Christian life. This is how you find joy in your life and you see the path as love. You see the path as prayer, you, you take on the posture of Christ and words like these come out of your mouth. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgive them anyway. I mean, Jesus had spikes being sunk into his wrists. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They're naturally minded. They don't know Jesus. I don't like it, but forgive them anyway. It's praying for enemies that softens your heart and ultimately you pray will soften theirs. There was the statement of Alfred Plummer who said, to return evil for good is devilish, to return good for good is human, to return good for evil is divine. 
It's being God's witness on earth. Kent Hughes spoke of a missionary couple that had come back off the field and they lived in a townhouse and it was a nice accommodation, nice place. The only problem with that area was its neighbors <laughs> and they were bad neighbors. And probably all of us have experienced something um, along the lines of neighbor tension, neighbor frustration. Well, this can be a real test. And this lady testified how um, kids next door were breaking windows and, and messing up their yard and you know, just making their life really horrible, even to the point where some boys were, and this is not some personal testimony under the guise of anything, but some boys were dumping orange paint onto um, the back patio of this lady's house. And she, she was really struggling um, big time. Uh, so Kent Hughes says, my wife's friend was really angry. She did not like her neighbor. She was hap- not happy with the Lord for putting her where He had put her, realizing that her heart was not right. She got down on her knees and said, Lord, you know that I do not like these people at all. God, help me to love them. She did not feel any different, but she resolved to exercise love. So she baked her neighbors a pie and took it to them, thus beginning a caring relationship. Those neighbors, listen to this, did not change, but she did. You see that? She did. She had begun to love them. When those neighbors moved away, she wept. This is volitional love. So why do we love like this? Verses 45 and following tell us. Let's look at verse 45. So that, so you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Look, The whole picture here of verse 46 is you have those who are doing the impossible according to the world's eyes, right? Every, everybody's enjoying common grace. We have sunshine sometimes in the winter, right? Sunshine. We have rain. We're eating off the land. We're enjoying the common grace of family and friends. Everybody's doing that. Everybody's enjoying common grace. But there are those who are under the especial grace and love of God, where they stand out. They're doing something a little more, and they're different in the world, and they're perceived as doing the impossible. What is impossible? Loving somebody who's attacking you, praying for them who's attacking you, not retaliating, not storing up bitterness and wrath, but loving For God so loved the world. He loves indiscriminately. He loves his image bearers. And so sons of a father like that do the same. It's what Jesus did. It's what you do. It's an extension of God's nature on earth. It's amazing. We are sons and daughters of God. German pastor and theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said, what was his heart what, and what was his heart towards his enemy? Remember, Dietrich was a co-conspirator to execute Adolf Hitler during World War II, complicated political scene. What was his heart? He says, this is the supreme command. He's reflecting on this verse. Through the medium of prayer, we are to go to our enemy, stand by his side and plead for him to God. John Stott, the great single theologian from England, Reflecting on Romans 12, 20 about feeding your enemy when they're hungry and giving them something to drink. He says, if you find someone who has burgled your home, you might find yourself calling the police, offering him food and water at the same time. This is the definite tension of the Christian heart. 
I can't help but share uh, a story. I was uh, prompted to do it this week by someone in our church, and I, I thought it was really good. Second Kings chapter 5, 1 to 5. You might turn there. I'll just give you some summary points. It's the story of Naaman, the leper, who was, who was miraculously healed when he encountered Elisha, and he was told to go wash seven times in the Jordan. Well, the, the backstory of this is Naaman, it says, was a commander, Second Kings 5, of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because of him. The Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. This is a, this is a strong, strong leader, commander, servant who's respected under the master of Syria. Syria is this dominating powerhouse nation that's dominating Israel in the Old Testament, very similarly to how Rome was dominating and oppressing Israel in the New Testament. So the hearers of Jesus sitting on the hillside under this sermon are relating to what Jesus is saying um, in terms of um, oppressors being Romans. Well, the Old Testament version of that were the Syrians, and they would oppress. And this is talking about Naaman who had just won a battle and as a man of valor, not against Israel, but some other enemy. But, but he goes into Israel and, and he plunders Israel. And the Syrians did this. It says, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl. This is trafficking. They trafficked this little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She became Naaman's um, wife's handmaiden in Syria. Now, I just want you to pick up on this. This is what this little girl did. She was stolen from her family, but she believed in God. Verse three, she said to her mistress, this is Naaman's wife, would that my Lord were the prophet who is in, who is in Samaria. I would cure him of his leprosy. He would cure him of his leprosy, meaning Elisha would. Verse four, so Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and, so, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. What's the point? The point is Naaman had one weakness and that was his leprosy. And this little girl saw that instead of hating her enemy, she loved him and said, I know who can fix your leprosy, which is an incurable disease except by God. And you need to connect with Elisha, the prophet, because he can do it. And guess what? He did do that. He worked through it and he was cured. He was cured. Luke chapter four, verse 27. There were many lepers in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. That's what one person said about that. I love this little girl in this story. She definitely is a co-laborer with God, a minister of reconciliation. She's extending the light and blessing to the one who took her captive. She was complete has complete faith that if Naaman were to see Elisha, she would be healed. She had faith in her God and she, he is not only able, that he is not only able to heal, but is also willing to heal, even an enemy of Israel. I think we can become so hard-hearted in our own hearts and we fool ourselves. We're being attacked and we stiffen to the point where we're unwilling to give the grace of the gospel so that somebody can be healed of their incurable disease that's only cured in Christ, which is your sins being forgiven, right? Let's not harden ourselves. Let's give the gospel to our attacker. Let's do that. Well, again, I'll just wrap here, wrap up. Verse 
45, talking about common grace. In verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? If you're just like people who are under common grace, everybody, every rank and file, what does that look like? You're just loving people that love you. You're just back scratching. What reward do you have? Is this, is this the reward of heaven? Are you assured that you're a Christian if you're just living like everybody else? Like the tax collectors who are duplicitous? Like the government, um, oppressive government workers who were robbing and bilking you of your money? You're just like them. Now, Jesus really gets under the skin of the Jew here in verse 47. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? A Jew would measure their holiness in terms of their own separation. And so he's saying, look, you're just acting like anybody else in the world if you just love people back for loving you. God has given us grace that's beyond common grace. He's given us a mission that is beyond social justice. We're not just do-gooding. We're transformed on the inside. That's why we can be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, we can pursue the holiness that comes by grace through faith. We're not going to be perfect in this life, but we're being made perfect from the inside out to be like Christ God has given us this special grace so that we can stand out in a lost and dying world. Will you stand out this week doing and living what from the world's eyes is impossible? Striving to be like Jesus who alone is perfect. Let's put on the Lord Jesus Christ this week and do it for God's glory and his witness.